News. It's 17.30 GMT. This is Eyewitness News on 97.3 CTFM. I am Umaru Sanda Amado. Tonight, I'm here with... Akosia Ofewa Opoku. And coming up over the next 90 minutes. Following the decision taken by Rexec during the emergency meeting, the wearing of smoke in Boko Township has been banned with immediate effect. This was necessitated by the fact that criminals or unscrupulous elements hide arms and ammunitions in smokes and attack opponents or innocent civilians. All persons living in Boko Township are to take note of the directive and comply until further notice. Upper East Regional Security Council bans the wearing of smokes in Boko following fresh agita agitations there which end residents a new hatch 4 p.m. to 6 a.m. curfew. We'll help you make sense of the issues there. Also, coming up, three senior members of parliament file a private member's motion, that is a private member's bill, on legal education. But they aren't the only one. The Attorney General, Godfrey Dami, has also drafted a bill to guide the same issue. We'll be asking tonight what direction the House will be taking. And later on Eyewitness News. The chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee is totally out of order. He is arrogating to himself powers that he does not have. He must stay clear of the Speaker's authority under Order 66-1. North Tongu Member of Parliament and lead advocate for the publication of details surrounding President Akufado's foreign travels, Samuel Okujetua-Blakwa, takes on Abetifi MP, who is also a former Minister of State at the National Security Secretariat, Brian Achampong, on that issue as to whether or not the issue should be disclosed to the public. Stay with 97.3 CTFM for more on this and many other stories on Eyewitness News. And in business... World Bank calls for the creation of more and better jobs to revitalize Ghana's long-term growth. That's in some 50 minutes with Netili Neti of the City Business Desk. Eyewitness News is live across the country on a number of affiliate stations. Around the globe, we are on City Newsroom. Dot com. It's an interactive show, so you can send us your messages using the WhatsApp platform 0549 0549-986-996. You can also send tweets, which means you should tweet directly at City973 or at Umaru Sanda, and the world will get to hear what you think. If you're in any part of the country, uh, you must definitely be listening to us on one of the uh, dozens of affiliate stations that are bringing you eyewitness news live from our studios here in Adabraka, in Accra. We start off uh, from the Upper East Region town of the Upper East Region town of Boko, where there are two directives by the Regional Security Council, chaired by the Regional Minister, uh, Honorable Stephen Yakubu. Now, one talks about the imposition of a curfew, and that one is signed by the Minister for the Interior, Ambrose Derry, which talks about imposition of a curfew on Boko municipality and its environs. And the second one by the Regional Minister, which is a ban on the wearing of smocks in Boko Township, signed by the Upper East Regional Minister, who is actually joining us on the line so that we make sense of the issues tonight. Uh, Honorable uh, Stephen Yakubu, you're welcome to Eyewitness News. 
thank you very much and uh your listeners also we haven't heard of boko i mean in the stem or sense of negativity in a while what exactly is a new problem it's the same problem the boko problem has always been the same problem so it's not any new problem it's the same problem it's just that it has again uh, brought its ugly head by the same problem not a new problem at all in boko is it a tribal issue, an inter-ethnic fight? Yes, that is what it is. Between who and who, and what caused it between, this time around? Between, between Mampuses and Kusas. So these are the two dem dominant ethnic groups in that part of the country, correct? These are the two groups that uh, ethnic groups that uh, sometimes get into a fight, and uh, th this time round, uh, that is exactly what it is. What sparked, what sparked this, this, this new fresh commotion? Uh, basically, it's about uh, uh, trying to perform a funeral of a chief or do rituals of a chief. That, was, that is what has sparked uh, the conflict again. And uh, it's about, uh, these are the two, I mean, this is the, the issue that has always been bringing up the fight in Boko. Uh, and that is what it is. So, who, which chief was supposed to be buried, or who's, which chief was supposed to have a funeral held for him or her? Well, it should be him. And uh, no, who, who, who opposed it? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, a, a, a chief who died uh, about 41 years ago. And uh, uh, the, uh, the other, other, the man side wanted to perform. Um, uh, funeral or rituals, and the Kusasis uh, are saying they will not allow that, and that is what has brought in this uh, conflict this time around. Okay, so the Mamprusis lost a chief some 41 years ago. I presume he would have been buried by now, but yes. the funeral was not held. Well, I, 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 my understanding is that the, uh, the Muslim and Adua was done, uh, but maybe other rituals were not done. Therefore, they wanted to do this funeral or this ritual. And my understanding is that this, uh, when it's done, it usually leads to skinning a, a chief. And that, and that is uh, what uh, the Kusasis are also saying that there is a chief in, in Boko, a Gazeta chief in Boko. And therefore, um, they will not allow it to be done. Because if it is done, then of course it's going to be an, an scheming. And, uh, and that is what is bringing up this uh, uh, fight this time around. So the Kusasis suspect that if this funeral is held, a new chief would be an skin, which will make nonsense of the existing chief who is a Kusasi. That, that, that is the issue. And that's right. Who is a Gazette chief. Uh, 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 in Bokuchi, Bokunawa. I see. Um, how long have the Mamprushis been agitating for this funeral to be held? And what has been the involvement of the government, both at the regional and national level, in finding a solution to this impasse between the two groups? Well, my understanding is that uh, I think somewhere in 1975 there was a PNDC law banning the uh, 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 this particular funeral, and that is what has always been up to this time round. 
so um, uh, you know, these agitations has always been there, and it has brought his ugly head again uh, to Bopo. Okay, so which means that as a regional security council, you were not informed by the Manproshi side that they were going to do anything of, of the sort uh, until you heard about what happened last night? No, no, no. We were not informed officially. No, we, we were not informed officially. But uh, from the Musek level, uh, this, this issue has been, uh, been, we've been working behind the scenes because we, we got the intel that this was what uh, the Manproshis were planning to do and the Kuzazis were not also happy about it. So we tried, we engaged both uh, uh, ethnic groups to try and to break the deadlock, to try and bring peace. Uh, we've done all that. Uh, so we thought that we had uh, completely, uh, they have agreed. And then till last night, when uh, uh, there were a lot of gunshots, and you know, Boko, when uh, they start like this, and you don't, you are not proactive, then, uh, you know, uh, people lose their lives. And that is why uh, at RESEC, when we met, we decided to be more proactive, banning uh, the wearing of smokes. Because, uh, you know, our experience shows that people usually wear um, uh, smokes and then hide guns under these uh, smokes. And then on the motor, they, will, they can cause, they can kill or they can shoot someone. And that is why we have banned uh, the wearing of smokes. And then we also realize that, uh, you know, shooting, uh, if we don't uh, impose this curfew, uh, it can also spark uh, the, the, the fight of Boko. And that is why we have, uh, with advice of Restec, uh, the interior minister has imposed this question. The wearing of smoke is a regular activity in Boko. Indeed, for many, that would be their only dress that they have or the only type of dress that they wear. If you're burning the wearing of smoke, you are indirectly asking people to walk bare-chested on the street, or? No, 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 no. There are other other uh, 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 you know clothes that they can wear it's not only smoke what we are saying is that at this particular time because of the situation in which we are don't wear smoke wear any other uh, attire that you want to wear but not smoke because we don't want anyone uh, to wear smoke and then hide a gun under this smoke and then cause any uh, mayhem or, or cause trouble in the municipality and that is why we are banning the wearing of smoke. Which means you suspect there are many guns in the community? Well, we are just trying to be very proactive. How long is this ban on smoke wearing going to be for? It depends. Uh, if we review it uh, as we go along, in a week's time, we review every security services, I mean, the, the security situation on the ground, and then we see. So it depends on the security situation. So I will not be able to tell you exactly when this ban will be lifted. What about the curfew? Um, it's 4 p.m. to 6 a.m., uh, which means that you have deployed military and police personnel to enforce that? Yes, we have. And how long is this one going to last for? Uh, well, we have done that, and uh, we're going to probably do it for a week and then review the situation and see what we can do next. Uh, so my advice uh, for the citizens is that uh, we should be calm. Everybody should uh, obey the laws and the rules that uh, have been imposed. And then also we should try and live together and be peaceful.
uh, if we want the peace, if we want to live and, you know, carry on our duty, then we should, you know, respect each other and live together. And that's the only way that we can, uh, will, will, will allow the security service and all of us to review, to take these uh, two things that we have imposed uh, on the citizens of Bapopo. Was there anyone, was anyone injured last night when, when the gunshots happened? Uh, no, we didn't want to wait for someone to be killed. We didn't want to wait for someone to be injured. Uh, and luckily, yesterday, all the gunshots, uh, no one got injured. Uh, so for now, uh, we, we, we are asking for prayers from every, every citizen of the country so that they back peace of Boko. Boko. I see. Now, what would be your advice to the persons who live in Boko, both Kosasis and Mampruses, uh, tonight? Just obey uh, the rules and also for us to live together and respect each other and obey just the rules and the laws of the land. That is all. If you go out to carry a gun and you are caught, you'll be dealt with. If you uh, break the curfew and you're caught, you'll be dealt with. So please, let everybody be calm and then allow the security services to do their work. But this would amount to um, a temporary measure. If the people are insistent on, on performing a funeral for someone who died more than 40 years ago, they would definitely continue to ask for that. And so maybe advice would be that uh, find a way to ensure this funeral is done so that there's a solution and that until that funeral is done, there will be recurring conflicts. You don't think so? Well, we are, we are engaging. You know, when this thing came up, we started engaging each other. We started engaging the two factions. And uh, though we have imposed this, we're not just going to impose and then sit down. We are working on it behind the scenes. We are engaging the, the two factions and to see the way forward, what we can do to have a lasting peace in Bobo. Thank you so much, Honorable, for speaking to us, sir. I thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. That's the Upper East Regional Minister, um, the Honorable Stephen Yakubo, and uh, he's the chairperson of the Regional Security Council there. And um, the information, if you're just listening, uh, is that, um, well, there's a ban on the wearing of smokes, or fugu if you like, in, in the township of Boko, and this is because of a, um, a fresh or a fear of some agitations in town, which started yesterday, resulting in gunshots and that we are told that that preemptive move is to stop people from concealing weapons in their smokes and uh, attacking their opposite numbers and uh, there's already a curfew that has been imposed on the area by the minister for the interior who is by law has the power to do so when we come back we hear from the people's representative in boko don't worry eyewitness news be there as it happens Let your voice be heard on Eyewitness News on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash city97.3, Twitter at twitter.com forward slash city973, and Instagram at instagram.com forward slash city973 with the hashtag Eyewitness News. This is Eyewitness News on 97.3 CTFM Broadcasting from Adabraka in Accra. I am Omaru Sandamadu here with Akosia of Opoko. We are broadcasting around the country 
on a number of affiliate stations, including Adrian Power 100.7 in Takwa in the Western Region. In the Bono Region, we're on Green at 95.9 FM. In Sunyani, in the Ashanti Region, we're on Alpha Radio 104.9 in Kumasi. And in the Volta Region, we're on Global 105.1 in Hu, as well as Adanu 107.7 FM in Adaklu Waya. In the northern region, we are on Diamond 93.7 FM in Tamale. In the upper west region, this would be Westlink 88.1 FM in Laura. In the northeast region, we are on SCAP 101.3 FM in Nakpanduri. And in the place where we have our focus tonight, Boko, in the upper east region, we are broadcasting via Source 100.1 FM. And uh, if you don't know what's happening in Boko and why, we are describing Boko as our focus tonight. Let me read for you two statements that have been issued by two ministers of state. The first one is issued by the Minister for the Interior, Ambrose Derry, who is also a member of parliament. And he says, in position of curfew on Boko municipality and its environs, the Minister for the Interior has, on the advice of the Upper East Regional Security Council and by executive instrument, imposed a curfew on Boko municipality and its environs in the Upper East Region from 4 p.m., to 6 a.m. effective Wednesday, 24th November 2021. The imposition of the curfew has been as a result of threat of insecurity in the communities concerned. Government calls on the chiefs, elders, opinion leaders, youth and people of the area to exercise restraint in the face of the challenge, challenges confronting them as well as to use non-violent means to channel their energies into ensuring peace. Meanwhile, there is a total ban on all persons in the aforementioned communities and their environs from carrying arms, ammunition, or any offensive weapons, and any persons found with any arms or ammunition will be arrested and prosecuted. So that's a statement signed by the Minister for the Interior, Ambrose Derry, and copied to the Minister for Attorney General, Minister for Justice and Attorney General, and the Production Coordinator at the Ghana Publishing Company. So that is for the Gazette purposes. And uh, if you look at the second statement that we have, it is a statement issued by the Upper East Regional Minister, uh, Honorable Stephen Yakubu, whom we spoke to a short while ago, and it's titled Ban on Wearing of Smokes in Boko Township. And the statement says, following the decision taken by RECSEC during the emergency meeting, the wearing of smoke in Boko Township has been banned with immediate effect. This was necessitated by the fact that criminals or unscrupulous persons uh, Unscrupulous elements hide arms and ammunition in smokes and attack opponents or innocent civilians. The statement continues to say all persons living in Boko Township are to take note of the directive and comply until further notice. MUSEC, that's the Municipal Security Council, is to ensure that this directive is enforced and anyone who fails to comply should be dealt with accordingly. We count on your cooperation uh, in this regard. Thank you. So that's a statement signed by the uh, regional minister who is chairman of the Regional Security Council and copied to the chairman of MUSEC, Boko Municipal Assembly. Before we came on the air, we spoke to the member of parliament for Boko Central, Honorable Mahama um, Yariga, who is urging calm amongst uh, both sides and says um, he is in support of the decision by RECSEC and indeed MUSEC and hoping for lasting peace in his community. We're scheduled to speak to him, but unfortunately we do not have access to him immediately because, as you would know, the House of Parliament is still sitting. This is Eyewitness News on 97.3 CTFM. Akosia has some reactions for us on WhatsApp. Yes, I do. The first one is coming in from Prince 
Nuruddin Baumia in Boku. He's saying that this unusual curfew imposed on Boku and its environs is unfortunate, and we are pleaded with the government to reconsider the decision. Also, the banning of the wearing of smocks has nothing to do with maintaining peace in Boku, and so the government should find an alternative. Another one from a listener in Boku, his Prince Bugri. He says the curfew will protect the lives and properties in Boku and its environs. But why the directive on the ban of wearing of smocks only in the township but not within its environs? Aziz Donla in Wa says the ban on wearing smocks in Boku is one of the best measures to stop the attacks in the municipality. Indeed, the government and stakeholders must find a lasting solution to the conflict because without peace there is no development send your message as well it could be on whatsapp or on telegram 0549-986-996 0549-986-996 and the world will hear what you think alternatively you can go on whatsapp and drop your mess not whatsapp on twitter and drop your message uh, using the hashtag city newsroom tweet at umaru sanda or at city973 and the world will get to hear what do you think? Let's move on to some other stories now. Akosia, shall we? A, a private legal practitioner, Francis Kujokwating Arthur, has sued the National Communications Authority, NCA, and the telecommunication companies in the country over the unauthorized collection of personal data. According to him, personal information Personal information, such as fingerprints and pictures, among others, are being taken by private institutions rather than the National Identification Authority, which is mandated by law to do so. Speaking to City News, the private legal practitioner says he's prayed the court to halt the SIM card re-registration exercise, which is being done using only the Ghana card, until the matter is resolved. The second part of the SIM card re-registration comprises of uh, you visiting the mobile network operator. They are going to use their cell phones with an, uh, a specialized app or it to take pictures of your palm print, which includes your fingerprints. And when that is taken, this information is going to be stored by a private company. And the said private company is not the National Identification Authority which is the only institution mandated by law to collect such information and store them. I am praying the court to simply um, ask the National Communications Authority to desist from the SIM card re-registration in its current form. Actually, I have applied for interlocutory injunction, which is coming on on the 9th of December 2021 by the Human Rights Court, yes. And please, uh, I am asking that the... NCA should be directed or instructed to tell the telcos to suspend permanently the re-registration of SIM card that is ongoing okay. so that after the case is determined, after the merit of the case is properly determined, then we will know which direction we are going. That was a private legal practitioner, Francis Kujokwating Arthur. This is Eyewitness News on 97.3 CTFM. We are coming to you from our studios in Adabraka, in Accra, around the globe. We are on citynewsroom.com. The issue of legal education um, has been one that has been running on the airwaves for a while now. Uh, the 499 law students or students who wanted to go to the Ghana School of Law who were prevented 
uh, had used several options available to them to protest. The last we heard of it was that they had a meeting with the Attorney General and they were given admissions uh, with some conditions attached. Now, while that is happening, there's been call or there have been calls for some amendments to be made to legal education in Ghana. Francis Evias, also the Member of Parliament for Madina and others, have filed a motion to the House of Parliament asking for some amendments to be made to the current General Legal Council Act, uh, which uh, has a Chief Justice as Chairperson of the Council. While that is happening, uh, this afternoon we saw information uh, that the Attorney General Godfrey Yeboadami has prepared a bill that he presented to the House of Parliament uh, which borders, or borders rather on legal education. Now, just before we could make sense of that, we saw another piece of information. Again, a private member's bill on legal education. This one is introduced by three members of parliament. The member of parliament for Bolgatanga East, Honorable Dominic Akutunga Ayine, who is a former deputy minister for the for Justice and Attorney General, who is the main sponsor of this bill. Then we have supporting uh, sponsors or co-sponsor being the Member of Parliament for Aswasi uh, in the Ashanti region, Honorable Muntaka Mohammed Mubarak. And there is as well um, another supporter of this bill, Member of Parliament for Okaikwe Central here in Accra, Honorable Patrick Yaobuama. So it's important to state that this would be bipartisan because two of the MPs I mentioned are NDC and one is NPP. It's titled Introduction of a Private Member's Bill Legal Education Bef uh, Reform Rule and it's dated 9th November 2021 and is addressed to the clerk to Parliament. Let's speak to the main sponsor of the bill, former Deputy Attorney General and uh, Member of Parliament for Bolga is Doc. Uh, Dr. Ine, you're welcome to Eyewitness News. Please explain to us what necessitated this bill of yours? Uh, thank you very much, uh, Umaru. Um, if you recall, in 2015, I addressed the Ghana Bar Association uh, annual conference in Kumasi on behalf of the then Attorney General, uh, Honorable Marietta Niyapiopo. And in, my, in that address of the Attorney General, uh, I touched on the linkage between the rule of law and legal education. And then I called for a radical overhaul of the legal and regulatory framework on legal education, emphasizing access to legal education for all as a matter of uh, a fulfillment of the constitutional principle of equal opportunity for all Ghanaians, And then also, uh, you know, the maintenance of quality. So there is the need for us to, um, you know, look at the current legal framework and what hinders the, I mean, uh, the achievement of the objective of, you know, expansion of access, as well as, you know, the maintenance of high quality in legal education. And, and that is why, that is what has carried me through, um, because I have been very passionate about it. Umar, you remember that I am myself, uh, you know, uh, a product of legal academia. I was, uh, uh, you know, a member of the law faculty for many years, for over a decade, before, uh, you know, becoming a member of parliament. And so I've been very passionate about this. And, and I have a personal story to tell, uh, which is that I come from a very, very poor background. And it is the law or access to legal education that has, you know, trust me into the legal class, I mean, the, the, the middle class 
of this country. That is what has provided me a source of livelihood. And I think that we should give every Ghanaian who desires to become a lawyer the opportunity to do so. So that is my the, the personal angle to it. Uh, but of course, I've been working on this since 2015. And, uh, you know, I've made several statements on the floor of parliament on this. And uh, the bill is a culmination of my thinking uh, and work um, in that in that in that uh, area. Okay, so let's talk about the defects you found in the existing law, which you are seeking to cure with this bill of yours. What are the key highlights of what you have prepared? Well, basically, what we are seeking to do is, as I said, to expand you know access uh, to professional legal education in particular. Uh, you will notice that. The existing law basically has the power uh, to regulate, you know, professional legal education in the general legal council, and then it gives the council the power, you know, to determine um, matters relating to, uh, you know, admission uh, fees and 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 you know, I mean, as such, uh, other essential matters of uh, legal education. And what we have seen so far is that because of the fact that the Legal Profession Act uh, basically vested the General Legal Council with discretionary authority to make regulations relating to the provision of legal education. Um, that general, the General Legal Council has stayed um, you know, rather conservative with respect to you know, the regulations that it has made and yeah, I mean, uh, that hasn't been able to propel, uh, you know, access to legal education as well as the maintenance of, uh, you know, quality legal education in the country. And that is why we are thinking that we should have a radical overhaul. So, first of all, we want, a, a, I mean, a, a new structure altogether that we call the Council for Legal Education and Training. Okay, that is detached from the, the, the current General Legal Council. The General Legal Council performs two functions under the current law. It regulates the legal profession per se, and then regulates legal education. We want legal education to be taken out of the ambit of the powers of the General Legal Council and let the council regulate the legal profession. Now, the wisdom in the current arrangement, um, you know, is, is that once you are the one regulating the profession, you should be interested in how people are trained for purposes of being admitted into the, into the profession. But we have growing demand for legal education and the General Legal Council hasn't been, you know, for want of a better expression, up to the task, you know, of meeting the demand uh, in the country for, I mean, uh, I mean uh, professional legal education in particular. And so we think that the Council for Legal Education and Training should be exclusively vested with the power to deal with legal education generally. So it will look at um, issues of, uh, you know, accreditation, for instance, for the faculties and law schools that will produce the LLB graduates, and then also regulate, you know, the, I mean, the bar exam, which we, 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 we I mean, uh, term the national bar exam in the bill. Okay, so everyone, our proposition is that everyone who has the LLB from a, an accredited law school should now go on to do a clinical legal program for one year, which will basically focus on, um, you know, um, you know, the practical courses. So civil procedure, you know, criminal procedure, the law, of, I mean, uh, convincing and drafting and uh, advocacy and legal ethics. 
And once you finish your clinical program, you are qualified to sit for the national bar exam. And that will be administered by the Council for Legal Education and Training. And so everyone is given, you know, a, 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 an opportunity to take a bite at the chair and, you know, to be, uh, I mean, a call to the bar. Those who do not, I mean, pass the exam will be given an opportunity to reset the exam by the Council for Legal Education and Training. And, and so, in, in short, this is uh, probably one of the most radical reforms that we want to bring to the, I mean, uh, to the table. There were issues around allowing the faculties carry out the professional law course for persons to write that exams like you're proposing. Is that one of the proposals you have or you still want to leave the professional law course to the Ghana School of Law? No, the professional law course will be run at the various faculties. So currently, I think there are about uh, 11 law faculties that have been accredited to run LLB programs. Uh, then allowing, you know, the, the products to write the entrance exam to the law school. What we want to do is that there will be no more, uh, quote-unquote, a Ghana school of law, so to speak, okay? What we will, I mean, have in place of the Ghana, you know, school of law is the law faculties running a clinical legal program, okay? So you do your LLB, which is the academic component, for three years. Then you do a one-year clinical legal program, which is what would normally be done at the Ghana School of Law, uh, you know, I mean, that is called the professional course. Okay, so we call it the, the clinical legal program. But we are pruning down the number of subjects that are taken at, the, I mean, at, that, at that level because currently, you know, there are too many courses at the law school that are totally unnecessary when it comes to professional training. So, for instance, I mean, they have the family law, and uh, um, what do you call it? Uh, they have family law, okay? Um, they have uh, banking law, and so on. These are matters that we think should be taken back to the academic component of the LLB course. Thereafter, they can focus on the clinical legal education program, and these programs should be run by lawyers, senior lawyers, employed by the faculty. And they will have smooth court rooms in all the faculties where the, the students will practice, you know, I mean, their advocacy and, uh, you know, legal writing skills. And subsequently, they will sit the bar exam and, I mean, uh, to be administered by the Council for Legal Education and Training and be admitted to the bar if they pass, okay? So we are uh, seeking to expand the, you know, the number of institutions that can run the professional legal course that we, we I mean, that, that we, we have now. Now, what that means is that we will need, for instance, transitional provisions in the bill, which are currently lacking for very strategic reasons. But those tra transitional provisions will deal with how we face out the law, I mean, the law school, how we deal with the number of uh, law students with LLB who have, not had, who have not had the opportunity, you know, to enter the law school for purposes of writing the bar exam and so on, okay, because we need to, I mean, manage that process in such a way that we don't have LLB holders desirous of entering the legal profession still roaming the streets after the bill has come, you know, into force. Very well. One of the key considerations for the, uh, in, well, for the tabling of a private member's motion or private member's bill is that it should not have any consequence on the national coffers. Explain to that us how this proposal of yours is going to be national budget-free. <laughs> no, 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 no. You see, there has been a very, 
restrictive interpretation of the provisions of the Constitution regarding the non-introduction of bills that have that I mean uh, um, will have I mean an impact on the national budget. Now, our view of Article 108, if I do remember, uh, I mean that provision is that it forbids members of parliament or any other person for that matter bringing a bill to parliament that seeks, for instance, to increase taxes. If you read the language of the, the constitution, it says that otherwise than by reduction. Okay, so I can even bring a bill that seeks to reduce a tax that has been introduced by the government. But I cannot bring a bill that increases taxes. I cannot also bring a bill that seeks to determine how the government, I mean, spends tax money. Okay, that doesn't mean that you cannot introduce a private member's bill, which will ultimately be implemented with public funds. The, you know, an interpretation that says that um, no bill should be introduced if ultimately, uh, you know, uh, public cities will be spent implementing it uh, will be too restrictive and will virtually, you know, render nugatory. That I mean, the, 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 the constitutional provision on private members' uh, bill. And so our position is that, yes, there will be public financing of legal education uh, because the, the Council for Legal Education and Training will be a public body. And if, I mean, the, the staff of the council will be paid for out of public funds, um, definitely there will be budgetary allocation towards these other activities to be carried out pursuant to the law and so on. But that does not mean that it is, you know, contrary to the constitutional provision, you know, in Article 108 of the Constitution. I, I think that we are on very solid ground. And once the bill has been admitted by the Speaker, it means that it has crossed the threshold, the Article 108 threshold, and that is why it is in Parliament. Very well. The Attorney General has sort of preempted your move. Yours is dated 9th November. He already has a bill uh, which is on the same issue, which is dated um, a month earlier. What is going to happen now that you are realizing, or are you aware that the Attorney General has already uh, made provisions well, for what I, are... saw, I saw the bill. I saw the bill making the rounds in the media, uh, social media in particular. But Umaru, I have not officially seen it in Parliament, and by seeing it in Parliament means that it will have been laid and read for the first time. As a member of Parliament who is, uh, you know, one of the senior members of the legal committee, I definitely would have had full knowledge of the introduction of this bill in Parliament. So it is not yet in Parliament. I think the date of the bill for me is of no consequence. Um, if it comes to Parliament, we have introduced an initiative, okay? The Attorney General's initiative follows the passing of the existing law, trying to merge professional, reg the regulation of the legal profession with the regulation of legal education. We think that that is a very outmoded approach, all right? We also think that because of the many things that the General Legal Council has been involved in, all right, it's, you know, focus on the regulation of legal education and the management of the system of professional legal education has been, you know, less than, uh, you know, I mean, uh, uh, expected. I mean, it has been below expectation. I mean, I'm saying this with all due respect to the learned members and justices of the, I mean, uh, that, that uh, you know, that uh, are on the General Legal Council. I don't in any way seek to say that they are incompetent, all right? I think that they are 
very competent, they are very skilled, but, you know, I mean, what they have been able to do so far, okay, has left all of us worried about the equal opportunities that young people should have when it comes to, you know, access to legal education. Very well. Thank you so much for speaking to us, Doc. My pleasure, Umaru. That's Dr. Dominica Ine, is a former Deputy Attorney General and Member of Parliament for Bolga East. Uh, he is the main sponsor of a bill, a private member's bill, that they have brought before the House, um, which is seeking to regulate legal education. Like I said earlier, the Attorney General, Godfrey Dame, has also proposed an amendment to the Legal Professions Act to, among other things, improve the quality of legal education in universities. In a 62-page bill cited by City News, Mr. Dami argues that the existing law does not give modalities for which the General Legal Council grants approval to universities to run the Bachelor's of Law degree program. To make this feasible, the Attorney General believes or is advocating for a council to grant licenses to universities which are to be renewed every four years. The universities running the LLB programs that require tuition fees are also mandated to take an insurance policy against loss of tuition fees in case the institution is closed down. Meanwhile, the bill seeks to maintain the passing of an entrance exams and interview session as a prerequisite for enrollment into the Ghana School of Law. Eyewitness News. Be there as it happens. Let your voice be heard on Eyewitness News on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash city97.3, Twitter at twitter.com forward slash city973, and Instagram at instagram.com forward slash city973 with the hashtag Eyewitness News. You're welcome back. Now, the ranking member on the Foreign Affairs Committee of Parliament, Samuel Okujetua Blackwa, has accused the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, Brian Champong, of undermining the authority of Parliament with his comments on the cost of the president's travels abroad. The chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee had earlier indicated that based on national security considerations, he had advised the national security minister to classify the matter of the cost of presidential travels as top secret. But responding to the issue, the North Tong MP insisted that the question must be answered, indicated that the government cannot seek to raise new taxes in the budget when it cannot even account for money spent on presidential travels. Security Minister, not to respond to the question we have filed relating to the President's profligate, uh, ostentatious, extravagant and cybernetic travels which, uh, as you know, we in the NDC caucus in Parliament have raised strong objection about because it is wasteful, it is totally unconscionable and unpardonable to have a presidential jet which is in pristine condition, to leave the jet, to abandon the jet on the tarmac and to be renting expensive chartered aircraft. Now, yesterday we heard from the I mean, we heard from the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee claiming that he has advised the National Security Minister not to respond to the question. First of all, we want to make the point very clearly that that statement is an affront to Parliament. It is an undermine of the authority of the Speaker of Parliament. 
Order 661 of our standing orders is very, very clear. And for the avoidance of doubt, I want to read that provision. Order 661 provides, Mr. Speaker shall be the sole judge of the admissibility of a question. So no member of parliament, no other person than the Speaker of Parliament, the Right Honourable Speaker, admits a question. And the question in issue, we relates to the President's May travels to Belgium, France, and South Africa. It's a question that has been duly admitted by the Speaker. It does not lie in the mouth of the Chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee to advise the Minister, who only last week was expected to respond to that question. And you know the history. After weeks of government, you know, uh, prevaricating and uh, pussyfooting, the finance minister came and told us that he doesn't have the full, uh, uh, he's not seized with the information on the cost of the travels and that we should go to the national security minister. The national security minister was eventually programmed to respond last week. The National Security Minister sent a question, sent a, a, a statement to Parliament, communication to Parliament, that he has had to travel. And so we'll be seeking another convenient time to come respond. At no point did the National Security Minister indicate that the information on the cost of the President's travel has been classified as top secret. And so he will not respond to the speaker's summons to come answer our question. So we want to state clearly that the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee is totally out of order. He is arrogating to himself powers that he does not have. He must stay clear of the speaker's authority under Order 66-1. Samuel Okujetua Blackwa is the ranking member on the Foreign Affairs Committee of Parliament. Now let's take a listen to the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee of Parliament, Brian A. Champong. Um, what he said yesterday regarding the cost of the president's foreign travels, which necessitated a report we just heard from Samuel Okujetua Blackwa. We're in hard times and different times on the security front. Ghana happens to be a good boy in a bad neighborhood. See what is, is happening around us. Uh, Cote d'Ivoire, Mali, Togo, Burkina Faso, the Sahel region, Mali. Almost everywhere there are pockets of issues. Terrorists is running some of these countries over. We have to elevate the conversation of our national security to a different level, especially and in including the travels of the president, either by uh, um, um, public transport by um, uh, presidential fleet vehicles and by air travels. The conversation has to be lifted to another level. We can't play politics about it. We can't um, make this thing a pedestrian issue and talk about it as though, you know, this is something that can be discussed in the public domain, uh, what is in the vehicle of the president, uh, how the president travels, what is in the aircraft of the president. That is very elementary and basic. This is a serious national security matter. And my advice as a chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee and somebody with some knowledge on security matters, my advice to the national security minister, if he has not already done so, should reclassify the president's travels from the past, the president, and in future from 
confidential, which is, I mean, there are classes of, of, of um, how you classify uh, government information. If it is for the general public's consumption, you'll find it in the library. If it is for um, some consumption, it will be marked confidential. Some are secret and some are classified as top secret. Some are even information that you don't even know that you don't know. Those are the four classifications of security or, or government information. And I'm saying that the National Security Minister should lift the conversation or lift the classification from confidential to secret and if possible to top secret. Because in these times that we are in, in this sub-region, when the president departs, how he departs, the type of aircraft or the type of vehicle are not matters that we can discuss uh, in the public domain. Bear in mind that these aircrafts, presidential aircrafts, they fly at 13,000 feet above sea level. The highest probably they go because of their size, maybe about 20. They don't reach the 39,000, 40,000 feet above sea level that uh, commercial aircrafts uh, fly. So we have to be sensitive. If the president decides that today I need to make a quick trip to Sierra Leone, I need to make a quick trip to Mali, even if he decides to go with the presidential draft, using flight tracker, flight tracker, you know that this is a tail number of Ghana's presidential flight, and you are able to track it. Is that how we want to expose our, our, our president to? And if in, in the event that we need to get either a, a, a private arrangement, a private jet, or any other arrangement, it should be one that is equipped that the president can function when he's even in the air. And this is standard presidential uh, 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 fleet arrangement. That was the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee of Parliament, Brian Echampon, speaking yesterday. Eyewitness News. Be there as it happens. Get the details. Every significant financial transaction, every market movement, and all the policies that affect your business. City Business News. Be informed. Time now for City Business News on Eyewitness News, brought to you by Vodafone and powered by citybusinessnews.com. My name is Nettie Nettie. Let's settle for the details. Ghana has an opportunity in the coming days to accelerate economic transformation and create more and better jobs after navigating through the heights of the pandemic. This is according to the latest World Bank's economic analysis for the country. The report, Ghana Rising, Accelerating Economic Transformation and Creating Higher Quality Jobs, noted that Ghana can achieve this through fostering greater global inter integration and technological transformation, among others. Speaking at the launch of the report, World Bank Country Director for Ghana, Pierre Laporte also urged governments to double down on macro-fiscal stability, natural resources management and revenue mobilization to enable long-term inclusive growth. Despite these promising indicators, challenges remain, as we all know. This growth has been uneven and has not always translated in job creation which we know will be increasingly important considering that 10 million Ghanaians expected to enter the labor force between now and 2040, according to UN estimates. Moreover, growth has become increasingly reliant on natural resources while ongoing barriers to digital technology adoption and digital literacy remain. Climate change adds further burden to the development challenge. 
The release of this report comes at a particularly critical time. The COVID-19 pandemic, as we all know, has led to reversals in development gains throughout the world, and its impact on Ghana has been no exception. Despite relatively low infection rates, the 2022 budget recently presented by the Minister of Finance charts an ambitious course to support job creation in a fiscally sustainable manner. Our hope is that this report can support this vision with evidence-based policy analysis. That was the World Bank Country Director for Ghana, Pierre Laporte. An increase in the SNIT contribution rates will help address the social security imbalance and avoid the collapse of the pension scheme. This is according to the actuarial valuation reports. According to the report, due to cash flow measures, the basic national social security scheme is facing a medium to long-term sustainability danger. The Africa Center for Retirement Research, a non-profit policy research organization, believes Parliament should consider increasing the SNIT contribution rate to avoid a depletion of the scheme. Abdallah Mashoud is the executive director of the Africa Center for Retirement Research. As it stands, adjusting the contribution rate appears to be the ideal and workable option because increasing retirement age will offer little impact and benefit cost is not an option we want to discuss as a country now. To avoid living in equitable high contribution rate on future contributors, Parliament must take action now by reviewing the present contribution rate for a financial stable scheme. Indeed, depletion of the trust reserves in 2037 is an outcome to be avoided and planning for the recommended increase in contribution rate is an activity that resides heavily with Parliament. The process of addressing the solvency concerns of the Smith scheme will likely involve a strong political will, long stakeholder engagement and intense debate in Parliament. It is time that the Parliament of Ghana and other relevant stakeholders examine actual recommendations and commence discussion on addressing financing shortfalls of the basic national social security scheme. Ladies and gentlemen, as far as fixing social security service concerns goes, we have little time to continue to kick the can down the road. The time for action is now, and it resides with Parliament. That was the Executive Director of the Africa Center for Retirement Research, Abdallah Mashoud. President of the Chartered Institute of Bankers Ghana, Right Reverend Patricia Sapo, has lauded the banking sector's adherence to best practices and ability to restore confidence during the COVID-19 pandemic. Confidence in Ghana's banking sector was hard hit by the banking sector reforms implemented by the central bank some three years ago, which saw the collapse and merger of some local banks, while some depositors who had their funds locked up are yet to access their cash. But Right Reverend Patricia Sapo believes the new digital products the banks introduced during the COVID-19 era has restored confidence again in the sector. She spoke to City Business News. The banks are doing very well. You know, if you look at over the period, majority of bank employees have been very honest. They've demonstrated a lot of integrity and that is why there's so much confidence in the banking sector. So I think that to a very large extent, you know, the banking sector has done extremely very well. If you look at COVID-19, the banking sector was ahead of the future. And therefore, when COVID-19 came, all the banks had the needed digital platforms, you know, to, to serve clients. 
and therefore a lot of people didn't need to go to the banking halls to perform. I mean, by the press of a button on your phone, you could have access to any service you wanted at the time and even now. And so I will say a big kudos to the banking sector for, for doing a good work. Right Reverend Patricia Sapo is the president of the Chartered Institute of Bankers, Ghana. Economist Karij Mati says he's confident the monetary policy authorities will take the needed measures to limit any persistent rise in the rate of inflation. Headline inflation, according to the Ghana Statistical Service, has risen consistently from the low of 7.5% in May 2021 to 11% in October, above the upper limit of the medium-term target band of 10%. Despite the rise in the rate of inflation in the past few months, Finance Minister Kenu Furiata announced that government is targeting an end of 2022 inflation rate of 8%. But in an interview with City Business News, economist Courage Martin noted that due to mostly external pressures, the target for the next year is likely to be missed. What we don't have control over is the external inflationary pressures, where at this point we appear to be importing inflation. But for the domestic factors driving inflation, which are supply side in nature, there is a risk of also creating persistence from the demand side. On that count, I would trust the monetary policy authorities to take appropriate measures to limit any potential demand pressures from causing inflation to become persistent. So for that reason, it is possible to have inflation reverting downwards in 2022 because I believe that the central bank can start to unwind some of the COVID-related interventions that they implemented in 2020 if the spate of inflationary pressures requires that they do that. So I trust monetary policy to step in if inflation proves to be um, stubborn. However, as to whether we can be able to hit the 8 zero percent mark by the end of 2022 it appears doubtful in my mind right now economist courage matty speaking there the bulk oil storage and transportation company limited bost is set to begin rehabilitation and expansion works on its petroleum transmission lines from tema to kosombo this comes as bost has finally taken delivery of 5400 pieces of 12 inch pipes among other equipments from the united states of america the pipes were procured in 2009 for $63.2 million through a U.S. Exim Bank facility, but the arrival delayed due to a contract, contractual disagreement and other administrative lapses. Addressing the media after speaking, addressing the media after speaking, managing director of BOST, Edwin Provencal, noted that the delivery would enable the company quicken plans to transport fuel and meet the growing demand in the northern parts of the country. This arrival could not have come at a better time than now when the reactivation of the Bogatanga depot for exports has made it more than necessary for high volumes of petroleum products to be transferred between Tema and Akosombo for onward distribution to Buipe through the river barges to meet the surging demand in the northern sector as well as the landlord countries. In line with the president's vision, of making energy affordable and as part of the four-year strategy of BOST that is to become operationally efficient, the company looks forward to improving the proportion of product transfer from Tema to Bulga to serve the export market and the northern regions. This will tremendously improve 
on the utilization and turnover of our marine assets. Again, the installation of this new line is expected to increase the utilization of our Mami Water Depot, which also serves as a booster station between Tema and Akosombo. It is expected that the company will, through the installation of this new line, attain the target of meeting the ever-increasing demand of the landlord countries in the Sahelian region at the lowest possible cost. That was the managing director of Bost, Edwin Provencal. And that'll be all for City Business News on Eyewitness News. It was brought to you by Vodafone, Together We Can, and powered by your most comprehensive business website, citybusinessnews.com. My name is Nettie Nete. Up next is Point Blank. Eyewitness News. Be there as it happens. This is Point Blank on Eyewitness News. I am Omar Sandama. Tonight on Point Blank, we go back to Parliament. The budget debate continues. And today, the focus is on the health sector. The member of Parliament for Doma Central and Minister for Health, Sokwa Main, was on his feet. He makes some statements, and there was a debate as well. Let's listen. Government budget is deceiving the nation. Meanwhile, the first budget, where he helped and started, was not deceiving the nation. Writing to negotiate and sign the contract for you helping the pilot project to be done in Central Region. Mr. Speaker, what else will never end? Honorable Member, um, I'll grant you the permission to remove your face mark so that we can hear you properly. Mr. Speaker, I started and you'll take note of the minutes that I've wasted. Please. That wonders will never end in this world, and I repeat it. This budget, according to one of my colleagues, is deceiving this whole nation, dishonest. Meanwhile, e-health was started by September 2013-16, whatever it is like. But I came in 2017 to negotiate to sign the contract even for the pilot to be started in Central Region. And as I stand here in 2017, and as I stand here, we have connected 36 facilities, including the teaching hospital in Cape Coast, that speak to each other. We have gone ahead to network all teaching hospitals in this country, all regional hospitals in this country. We have now dropped down to 60 district hospitals selected across the country that we are working on. Said that patients don't carry records, I mean, how do I call it, to go anywhere if they are even referred to a teaching hospital. Mr. Speaker, I will continue to say that uh, one honor, day Honorable members, don't forget my history when you are talking about health. So, uh, both sides, I, I've been listening to you. I was a minister for health. So, I know and I have the documents, but because I can't participate in the debate, I'm just listening to you. Mr. Speaker, where you sit now, you don't have options than to sit and listen. <laughs> so that is your predicament. I hope you enjoy debating, but you cannot. 
Mr. Speaker, I continue to say that wonders never end. Why? Because some of us want to go to the upstream of any river, muddy the waters, and they will rush down to come and tell the people down there that look at what we have done to the beautiful river that we have. Mr. Speaker, fair prices, 11 taxes. Who introduced them? So dishonest. Who introduced them? You go and introduce 11 taxes on petroleum prices, and then you come and tell me that I should remove them. Is that fair? Mr. Speaker, I will continue. Wonders should never end. Why should it be? We are asking for hospitals, those that have been abandoned, according to my colleague, Honorable Akando, to be completed, new ones to be built. Where will we get money to do Agenda 111? So many things. Meanwhile, under the breath, there should be no taxes. E-levy should be dropped. Taxes should be reduced. So how do we provide these? including roads and several other social services. Mr. Speaker, our debt situation is not anything that anybody can write home about. But let us look at how some of these monies have been spent. Honorable Akano is asking for complete investigation into COVID expenditures because they are material and that adds up to our debt budget and we will get investigations into that area. Mr. Speaker, the financial sector cleanup, that one, none of us want to talk about how it happened. Almost all banks in this country were going broke by the end of 2016. If you had entered 2017 without change of government, Mr. Speaker, I'm afraid some of us will have signed checks without laying hands onto our deposits that we have put into the banking system. Here, I wouldn't read what Secretary said, IMF told you. Financial sector reforms should have started as far back as 2013-2014, where most banks were not even meeting their capital adequacy ratio. Yet, we couldn't do anything. Then we come in, 2017, yesterday we managed to come and resolve financial sector, put reforms in there to clear the best. At the end of the day, the cost to this country is part of the debt burden that we are now entertaining. The energy sector, IPP challenges, litigation and some compensation to some people to just get them off, to make sure that we will kill those off which we have actually done. That is part of our debt burden. Mr. Speaker, apart from these mess that we inherited, there are several others, and I'll continue. The new initiatives that we started, who has costed senior high school costs? school feeding costs. All these things have been borne by the government, by the states, without people paying for anything. Mr. Speaker, let me go to growth. We have soon forgotten about the impact of COVID on all of us, even including Parliament. For several months, we were in lockdown. We wouldn't come to the chamber. When three people come today, four people should come tomorrow. How could that have contributed to any magnificent growth in any economy? Not only here in Parliament, the banking system, up to today, have gone to work two weeks, the third week, they don't come again. Lock up of Kumasi and um, Accra, the economic nerve centers of our country, against the other parts of the, of the country. For nearly two months, nine months, ten months, how could that generate growth into our system? 
Yet, you were doing better growth than when NDC exited this, I mean, exited, exited government. Because these are some of the things that all of us here should think about passionately and probably put an end to politics that we want to do for power. And let us think together as one community, one nation, to solve the problems that epic, sorry, COVID has brought to us. Mr. President, Mr. Speaker, let me come to investments in health. Mr. Speaker, it is on record by WHO assessment that two countries that got faced right with COVID management, Ghana and South Korea, nobody can challenge me. You can go to the archives and check on WHO. How did they do it? Investments, good thinking, innovation, initiatives, good ones. That helped us to do that. That is on record. We haven't finished. Mr. Speaker, no government in this country has ever positioned the ambulance service of our country the way government has done for us. We procured 307 ambulances at a go. 200 ambulances that NDS were supposed to provide. Just about 37 were provided. You couldn't use them. They are still sitting somewhere. You are all ministers for help. They did not take delivery because they were not up to the standard that the procurement prescription gave. They are all sitting there. We are still not taking delivery of them. We procured 307. And Mr. Speaker, the good thing was the fact that, you see, vision. If we hadn't procured these ambulances in the midst of COVID, we wouldn't have known where this country will have moved to. Apart from that, Parliament has approved another 100 ambulances to be procured to beef up what we have in the system. Human capacity to ambulance service. What we met was nothing to write you about. Yesterday, I commissioned about 435 new drivers to join the ambulance service. And that will bring a total number of ambulance service personnel close to about 2,500. And when we are talking about employment, we are saying that we haven't done nothing. We have done so much, Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, not only that, I'm talking about COVID and why we want to forget about COVID so immediately. During the lockdowns, government was speaking about the core poor people. They are not working. Some of them will work from hand to mouth. If they don't go to work one day, they have nothing to eat. The laborers. We gave free utilities, water, electricity. We started giving some of them. Oh, you are forgotten. That's why I'm saying that you are forgotten about COVID so soon. If you had been afflicted with COVID, probably you remember. But thank God that most of us weren't there. So let us be very factual. Let us be very passionate. And when we have a problem created, not, not by any of us, but by nature, and from the rest of the world, we think about how we together can put our heads together and resolve the matter. Now, vaccines. Mr. Speaker, I'm so amazed. When I was rushing to get the vaccines, to do vaccination very quickly to meet our deployment targets. I was so uncomfortable of not having come to parliament and I've been lambasted to the extent that now I don't have any image in this country. Your own colleague in the chamber. Now you stand up and tell me that our vaccination has been very slow. Mr. Speaker, we did a deployment plan that Honorable Atando has got a copy. That is what made Ghana receive the first consignment of COVID drugs, I mean vaccines, in the whole world, because we submitted our plan number one. And they looked at it and started giving it to other countries even to copy. 
And that is what gave us the first consumer to 600,000 AstraZeneca vaccines in February. We started deploying very quickly in March. And when that got finished, India, where we were supposed to take the COVAX vaccines from, had blocked its, I mean, export drive so that we couldn't get vaccines any longer. And between April and August, Mr. Speaker, I beg to say that we never received a single dose of vaccines from anywhere apart from the COVID that I negotiated for. And we got the first 21,000. And even that, the guy couldn't supply, which made us cancel the contract. So what crime was this? And now you come and sit here and say that government couldn't meet its own target by vaccinating 17 million people by now. Where could we have got the vaccines from? Where could we have got the vaccines from? Mr. Speaker, my predictions and my projections that we're going to get vaccines adequately enough in August had yielded fruit. And therefore, from August coming, we have been receiving COVAX vaccines month on month, donations from other countries, bilateral, and all these things we negotiate and send agreements. But the fact is that we have the capacity to administer, and we don't anticipate that we shall waste any vaccines that we see from our side, whether the ones that we have procured or the ones that we have not, we have taken on the nations. Mr. Speaker, Elam, I keep on saying that wonders will never end. You want me to administer vaccines 17 million by now? Cost of vaccines is big. You say, no, Elam, how do we pay for these vaccines? They are quite expensive. I want us to continue taking donations without buying anything. It can happen. Mr. Speaker, the year level. There are hospitals that have been started, not completed. We want some more facilities. We need hospital beds. We need equipment. There should be no level. So we should go ahead and sit there without doing nothing. Mr. Speaker, when you are confronted in oppressive research with complex equations like we are in, you need money to do a lot of things. We don't have the money. You think on your feet innovation and take bold initiatives to help you resolve some of these problems. Mr. Speaker, the new levy issue, we have thought about it. Government has thought about it. And we are cutting on the core poor people who do not have money to transfer to anybody. They are not going to pay some of these taxes. We are targeting people who are doing electronic trading, have joined the tax debt. As a way of widening the tax debt, this is the only way we can get middle class, upper class people who are there, IT survive, who are transferring monies here and there, who are making payments for imports from Turkey and um, how do I call it, Dubai. They are the people we are targeting, not a poor person who is transferring less than 100 Ghana. No, it won't go there. But those of us who can transfer 5,000 to the constituency, we are the target. We need to take from you, the rich guys, to take care of the poor. And that is the only way this country can progress. Other than that, we can move nowhere. We will make sure that we will introduce taxes, not carry taxes. That will affect the poor and leave the rich. We are taxing the we are taxing people who are rich to take care of the poor. And any time you come and introduce carry taxes, we will come and remove them again. Mr. Speaker, the threats and sort of intimidation on this budget. We will not approve this. We will insist at the committee level that this is here. Mr. Speaker, that will not take us anywhere. Let us all be cheerful and solve the problems confronting our nation together. We can do that. So you insist, nothing comes. We'll not approve, you don't get the budget. What happens to this country? So you don't want us to increase taxes to put burden on poor people. You rather want us not to have a budget, 
so that government cannot spend and the burden will go to who? I mean, I can't understand this. Because I'm pleading with my colleagues that they should exercise restraint. Because whatever government is doing, is doing in the good interest of our people and this nation. We won't take our glasses and kill ourselves. We are just finding a way, innovatively, bold initiative to raise money. Say that we can take care of the poor and introduce social services that all of us can benefit from. We need roads. You are talking. I mean, my colleagues from Middle Belt and the North, if you have been able to complete the Kumasi dualization that you inherited for eight years and couldn't even get to Apidra, wouldn't you drive on it? That will cut our traveling time, said that if you are going to the North, you can get there faster. Insurance tax, how do we do them? Look at Great Accra, Mr. Speaker. Apart from this, at the central archery, the big ones, and then look and corner you go into Great Accra, there are no roads there. And in some of our regions, there are better roads in our districts than our capital. It is a fact that as a country we have failed to vaccinate our people on time to meet the herd immunity. Mr. Speaker, I say so because the government presented to us a plan, a vaccination plan, and this document is titled COVID 19 Vaccination Deployment and Vaccination Plan. Mr. Speaker, according to this document, on page 29, we were supposed to have vaccinated about 1.5 million people between April to June 2021. Mr. Speaker, again, from June to August, we were supposed to have vaccinated about 6.3 million. Mr. Speaker, between September to October, we should have vaccinated about 9.5 million people. Mr. Speaker, you know, by this time, we should have vaccinated not less than 17 million people. Mr. Speaker, ironically, if you refer to the 2022 budget on paragraph 1028, Mr. Speaker, we have vaccinated only 2.5 million. Oh. Mr. Speaker, but your own marking scheme, 2.5 divided by 17 is an obvious fail. Mr. Speaker, the excuse used to be the non-availability of the vaccine. Mr. Speaker, per their own budget, Mr. Speaker, table 28, page 203, Mr. Speaker, they are telling us that now they have taken, I mean, deliveries of more vaccines in this country. Mr. Speaker, are we waiting till these vaccines expire and throw them away? The cheapest thing to do, Mr. Speaker, at this point in time, is to expedite action on the vaccination in this country. Yay. Mr. Speaker, after waiting so long for freebies and getting more than about 8.4 million doses of vaccines, the cheapest thing to do here, Mr. Speaker, is to expedite action on vaccination in this country. Again, Mr. Speaker, a very relevant information is missing here. As members of parliament, we need this information to help us to, 
I mean, perform our oversight responsibility well. The speaker, yes, the total number of vaccines that has been received has been quoted in, uh, I mean, table 20, 29. But what is missing out of the 8.4 million is, out of the 8.4 million doses, how many did we receive as donations? And how many did we buy? And the processes leading to the purchase is very important, Mr. Speaker, yeah. we should take in mind. Yeah. Yeah. Mr. Speaker, that information is relevant. We have eaten behind COVID and we have spent in excess of 15 billion Ghana cities. Mr. Speaker, and the core issues as far as COVID is concerned has been left unattended to. Mr. Speaker, irrespective of the fact that we have spent in excess of 15 billion, frontline health workers, as I speak to you now, have not been paid their allowances, some of them. Mr. Speaker, just some few kilometers from here, go to uh, 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 Kolebu, irregular supply of oxygen. Where did this money go? Mr. Speaker, that is why I agree that there must be a whole investigation, a whole probe into the entire expenditure of COVID. Yeah. Mr. Speaker, and let me serve notice that during the estimates at the committee level, we will insist on the details of the COVID expenditure. Yeah. Yeah. Mr. Speaker, again, the Mahama administration left and invested hugely in the infrastructure in the health sector. Yeah. Without imposing a transaction levy. Mr. Speaker, per Article 357 of the 1992 Constitution, governments are enjoined to continue to complete and operationalize any project that they inherit. Mr. Speaker, again, any document that with a sort of a budget must give the progress so far on all these projects. We are listening there to Honorable Akando ending that debate in the House of Parliament. Earlier, had the Minister for Health, Kukwa Jimamenu. Well, the debate continues in the House, as and when key issues are raised will help you make sense of them here on Eyewitness News. My name is Umaru Sanda Amado. This has been Eyewitness News, produced by Sixtus Don Ulo and Beverly London. Technical support from Daniel Squashi. We'll be back tomorrow at 17:30. G. City News, we speak first. Reach our hotline on 0302-976-732 and get interactive on Facebook, City 97.3 FM and Twitter at City 973.